this morning we'll continue our summer series. Summers give us a chance to slow down and ruminate and learn and memorize scripture together. There's some cards where you came in that help you uh, memorize some scripture each week as you reach in your pockets countless times throughout the week. You pull something out and, and focus your mind on God's word. Uh, I'm going to invite Aaron Victor to come up and read our passage this morning. We'll continue our series in Philippians called uh, Joy Complete this morning. This is... This is from Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be with you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being with the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name in which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those of heaven and on those of earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Aaron. Will you guys pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, We thank you for uh, opening it up to us by your spirit. Um, Let us um, have open eyes and ears and hearts uh, this morning. Uh, Lord, may the words that I speak and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We get this passage, and this is one of my favorite passages. When I was ordained years ago, there were two. They asked for two guiding ministry uh, passages of scripture. And the first one was Isaiah 61. And the second one was Philippians 2. So preaching this passage is a little bit, for me, a little bit like Easter or like Christmas, right? I, I, I can't miss the opportunity to preach on this passage that I love. Don't hold me to that, by the way. Uh, hear these words for yourself. It's powerful enough that I could just get up here and read it uh, over and over for 20 minutes and it would be beneficial because God's word doesn't return void. At the beginning of this chapter, it's predicated on what we've been thinking about, learning about, memorizing for the last several weeks. Whenever you read a therefore in scripture, you're always supposed to ask what? What is it there for, right? What happened before? What is all this hinging on? Namely, our ability to suffer well, 
you can flip back a couple pages, to, to stand firm and to sustain gospel-worthy lives. Not only to survive, but somehow to thrive in the midst of this, to have lives of joy, even as we experience or witness or, or jump into voluntarily or involuntarily lives of suffering around us. We talked about this last week, that we should encounter, if, if we're paying attention, if we're being faithful, massive opposition and impediment, not, I think, in a masochistic way where we seek out those things, but it, it'll come for you, trust me. <laughs> but we'll somehow be able not to run from it, not to flee from it, not to mute it out or ignore it, but to make a life in that, to experience joy in that. So therefore, Paul goes on to say, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, and that common sharing is, is this word koinonia, this is what community means, and that's a whole nother sermon for another day. We talk about community, and I think most of the time we assume that it just means people who are near each other for the right amount of time become community, but it's this, this word that means participation, common sharing. There's no such thing as passive community. If you have any of this, if you have any tenderness or compassion, and again, this compassion word is this churning of the guts word. Uh, this, this, is, this is earthy, hearty, whole being stuff. At this point, he seems like he's really backing us into a corner. This is kind of what Paul does. Like he, he, he stacks up this huge argument, and he says, if you've experienced any of these things, any joy, any compassion, any sharing, any fellowship, any, any tenderness, any of these things, and then you're like, okay, so what? Like, I don't have any choice. What are you going to ask of me? What's interesting that instead of heaping on an obligation, he doesn't say, then you need to up your tithing or you, you need to up your attendance to church or you need to, like, volunteer more for a nonprofit. Instead, he says that he wants them to make his joy complete. Make his joy total and full and like the logical end to what he could ever hope for or experience joy in. It seems that Paul at this point is a pastor and a prisoner and he's inviting and entreating these suffering friends in Philippi to flourish and to fulfill their calling. And if they do that, it'll complete his joy, even from a prison cell. At this point, it seems like pastor, prisoner, Paul turns into kind of like parent Paul, right? Because nothing makes a parent more exciting, uh, more excited than to see their kid or their kids united united of same mind and love and spirit. Like I remember from my childhood, I have one brother and my, my parents, like a drum beat, would always say, you guys better get along because this is going to be your friend for life. This is going to be your friend for life. And then when we actually on rare occasion did that well, I, I'm, starting, I'm starting to see with my own kids how gratifying that is. Not like 
you can really generate it very often as a parent. But when it happens, it feels awesome. That is making my joy complete. When your kid is living in to their calling, into their humanity as a, as a giving, sharing, loving being. And I can't help also, he says, have the same mind, the same love, the same spirit. I can't help but also hear, and if, I think this is how scripture works and works on us, hear this faint echo of the Shema, which is like the capstone Jewish prayer that they would say three times a day. It was part of their devotion to God. They'd say, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is God. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because God is one, so too you shall be one, and you shall be one in heart, in mind, in soul, in strength. It seems like the Philippians are experiencing unity in their suffering, the ways their bodies are in this, the, the ways that they must stand firm. But now he's asking them also to be unified of mind, of spirit of soul, in one love. It seems like this heart, soul, mind, strength needs to be submitted to one God to find its unity, to find its fullness. And of course, Jesus uh, also grabs onto this, this prayer because of course Jesus was a good Orthodox Jew and when uh, he was asked and they were trying to trick him, they're always trying to trick Jesus when they ask him questions. They ask him what is the most important thing? What is the, 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 the law above laws? And Jesus says, well of course you know it's a Shema. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he passed that test and they tried And then he adds on to it and he kind of tags on and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Do you see Paul starting to pull on this logic, pull on these things that Jesus says with his, says with his words, but also shows with his life? Paul traces the contours of this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You know the kind of vain conceit if you flip back a chapter that there are other preachers preaching the gospel out of vain conceit. He says, don't do that. <laughs> he says, instead, take on humility and value others better than yourself. Do you hear those Jesus words getting recycled here? Value others as better than yourself. Think of them both more often and qualitatively better than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. So I want to talk about, for the rest of our, our time focusing on here, a few things that, that stood out to me. And I don't often see things. I'm not, I didn't grow up Baptist enough to see things in three points in alliteration, but I actually saw three C's here, so it's really cool. So if you're taking notes, get ready. First thing about this kind of humility, this, and if I was more Baptist, I would say humbleness, you know, I would take off that H. The first thing about this is it is a common calling for us. It is so common, and thank God that it is. Because if it was not common, it wouldn't be something we, we could do or that we should do. 
Thank God that the thing that we're supposed to do is to make ourselves less, to, to empty ourselves, and, and to, to be humble. Not that this is easy, but it's, it's common. It's accessible, and, and we also see it. We've seen this happen. We've seen it happen in Jesus, and we see it happen countless times in our lives and in our weeks. The text in verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. The same noose, the same mind. So we're supposed to actually do this. It's not supposed to be hypothetical, and, and we can do this. I think of Dallas Willard. He says that we can increasingly resemble Christ in character and in power by following him in his overall style of life. We can do this. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do. He says, Willard says, this was the method of his earliest disciples and it's as valid for us today as it was for them then. That we can follow Jesus in his overall style of life. I don't think this is to diminish like the uniqueness of Jesus his, his life and his death and his resurrection is this once and for all thing that in some ways is so apart from us and is so in our place that, that we needn't touch. But the thing about it is that this does implicate us and it pulls us in and we're asked to be united to it and to participate in it. This means not only that we should follow Jesus by shaping our lives around Jesus, but that we can precisely because we're united with Jesus, we share in his spirit, and we can all empty ourselves. We can't all fill ourselves, but we can all empty ourselves. Like if you look in your pantry, in your cupboard, and like our pantry, we have a place for pots, a place for Tupperware that's a disaster, and a place for cups, and they're all different volumes. They all have different capacities. So you might fit a gallon in one, and eight ounces in another, but when they're empty, they're all zero. We can all empty. Same thing with us. Some of us have massive capacity and, and others look on and say, how do they do all that? They have the same amount of hours in one day, same amount, and in fact, they have more than us, more responsibilities than us. How do they do it? How do they get it done? Others of us feel like we have nothing to give. We got no bandwidth feels like, in fact, it feels like we're like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. Like we, we can't carry anything. Both of those people can empty. And in fact, if you're the bucket with a hole in the water, you got a, uh, a hole in the bottom, you got a head start to emptying. How about, how about that? This is the last becoming first. This is kind of how that works. This is gospel logic. If the directive uh, instead was that, you know, like Jesus, we need to be filled with God. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to, to climb this mountain and achieve this height. That would be a little intimidating. I don't think that call would be so common for us. But the call instead is to empty. And it's an offer that's open to all. I'm thinking of like Isaiah 55 when it says, Come to the table. All you who are hungry, all you who thirst, come without money, come and buy. This is, this is because Jesus, who was in the very form of God, didn't exploit that, didn't take advantage of it, didn't grab at privilege or status. He never threw down a trump card. 
but he emptied as our example and as the one in whom we're in. In Christ, we empty because Jesus made himself nothing. He made God small enough for us to to see, to behold the glory, to access. He made that calling common. He made it so that God can relate to us and we can relate to God. This has been a key, Philippians 2, a key scripture text for scholars to come to all sorts of conclusions about who Jesus was. Like in theology, it's called Christology. You know, they talk about this passage. And many try to figure out based on this just how much, how much God there was in Jesus and how much human like what Jesus knew and when and what capacity Jesus had that is like us and that is completely above and beyond us. I think these are important questions to grapple with, but I think the key thing here is the mystery and the beauty that God might take on flesh and that it looked like this. That when God would come into the world, it would look like this. In the main word would be empty. That the image of the invisible God would be a slave. That life would be won via death. You see all these contradictions, all these like massive divine surprises? That riches would be communicated in poverty and that the logic of the universe would be undone and rewritten. This is what's happening here. Everything we think we know gets undone and rewritten. This master story where sin and death are unmasked and rendered obsolete because of this God who would become a curse for us. It's how God blesses by becoming a curse. It's how God fills by becoming empty. God would empty God's self that we might be filled. And we'd, we'd join in to this great emptying. That's what discipleship is, is this great emptying. You see Jesus throughout the Gospels trying to get his guys. He always traveled with guys, but there are a lot of girls in the story too. Um, but his group around him, I think he had guys because they needed to learn this even more, how to empty um, and so there's this great story in Matthew 20 where um, the, the sons of Zebedee, um, James and John, they send their mom to Jesus to try to get like this prestigious place because they, they're starting to catch on. Jesus is ushering in this kingdom. They still don't quite get how that's going to work and what it's going to look like. They think it's going to be this like zealous insurgence, this political overturning. Um, but they, they, they kind of want in. And so they send their mom to say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can they, like, be in your cabinet? Can they have some power here? And, Je- and Jesus uh, is like, okay, we need to rehuddle here. We, we're not understanding this. So he rehuddles them, and, and he says, and, and this is Matthew 20, uh, 25, he says, he called them over and he says, you know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. They lord it over them. He says, but that's not the way it'll be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be a servant. Same word for slave. 
Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. You see, even in his presence with his friends, he's trying to get this new logic operating in their lives. So I guess if this is so common, if this is something that we're supposed to take up and is not only accessible to us, but something that's necessary for us, like what is your thing? <laughs> what is the thing that you, you'll empty, you'll drain the whole pool of your life, but you won't drain this one thing out of? Like what habits have you long held on to that, that you won't let empty? I think we all have that thing. You don't have to shout it out right now. Just think about that this week. What is holding, holding you back? Like, is it, is it money? Is it, like, your reputation? Like, some bit of influence? Or, like, are you, are you afraid to, like, empty your time, your attention? Does that feel like something that you can't let go? Can you not let someone else have the last word? That's, like, the most subtle ways that we way that we refuse to empty or like our imagination for what our future is going to be can't can't possibly exhibit humility here because i would miss my chance i would miss my chance and if i miss my chance it's all over this common calling the other thing uh, number two is humility for us in this passage is completely and utterly concrete got to be real. It must have a real outworking. There's no way to be hypothetically humble. <laughs> if you're hypothetically humble, you are not humble at all. Uh, Karl Barth says that humility in the abstract can be the grossest pride. Like if it's just something we think about, it can, it can come across so disgusting. We, can, we see this in verse Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as man, concretely, God became man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not, not this, you know, when we go through something hard and we say, that's just my cross, I had to bear it. No, like a cross on a hillside in the Middle East at the beginning of the first century, concretely, Jesus humbled himself, even to death on a cross. Humbled to death, obedient to death. This is exactly what we all fear. That if we don't hold on, if we, if we don't get our say in, if we don't get our vote counted, like that we'll die. That we'll die literally or that we'll die kind of metaphorically that we'll, we won't be anything more. And Jesus taking on the appearance as a human and dying means that it's happening and the worst is happening we don't have to fear it anymore. Death is exactly what we're invited into because we're joined to Christ. That's where he went and that's where he's going. To the belly of the beast, to the very basement. If we're headed down, we're going we're gonna to meet Jesus there in this place of emptying, 
this scary, scary place. This has been, like ironically, this has been one of the hardest things for Christians throughout history to actually get. And you'd think we'd have an inside track on this, but there's volumes of history about this. Like our missionaries don't really get this very well. You'd think we would when we're going out to proclaim the good news to people in darkness that there is this light and that we were in darkness, so we need this light as much as anyone. But our missionaries do this, with some exceptions, pretty terribly. I think of this quote by a missionary who became a bishop, Leslie Newbegin. I, I think he gets, he gets how this should look. He says, the missionary must be the salt that dissolves into the meat it disappears and dies in it. Take that as you go into your neighborhood or into your work as a missionary, as someone proclaiming Christ, that you will go, you will dissolve into the meat like salt, and you will die in there. That means that you will, you will not stand out for any other reason except for the fact that you bring preservation and flavor to this world. That's the same thing with our light. We, we, we're salt and light, we so often assume that we're going to go as a spotlight or a flashlight. We need to be the, the, the illumination that, that merely just lights a path or that highlights what God is already doing and what God has already done. I think this is the same thing historically. Like For a long time, it was hard for me to believe how good Bible-believing churches could, sat, could sit idly by and let like slavery happen in the South, or like the Holocaust happened, how, how there was a whole network of churches in, in Weimar, Germany, that, that didn't just look at, at, at what was going on, look at this, this thing that was happening and, and stand against it. Because we're not willing to put it all on the line. It feels like if we're not willing to expose every corner of our lives that, that this whole thing is gonna die. And in some sense, we are that fragile. <laughs> in some sense, we are, we're rightfully afraid that if we let it all go, we won't get it back. That it's like pulling a thread on a sweater, and all of a sudden, that sweater is just like a ball of yarn, like that we, we no longer exist. Must be concrete, or else it doesn't exist. This humility, this this integrity. Like I, practically now, like I, I, I kind of think of this in terms of like some of the neighborhoods, um, great neighborhoods and great people, I'm sure, but like you can walk around a neighborhood not far from here and see all these, all these great yard signs. Uh, many of you guys have seen the yard signs, like talking about what matters um, to these neighborhoods. Um, and how welcome people are. And then you go on the listserv and you hear how scared these same people are that there was a black delivery guy <laughs> or that someone was walking on the street. But these are the same houses that have Black Lives Matter signs. Um, and so we see the necessity for our humility, for the things that, that matter to us and that we care about to be concrete because if they're not concrete, they don't exist. Humility doesn't exist in the abstract. I think we have a chance for this, and this is, this is a thing, it's not the thing, but I think we have a chance for this to, as we partner in this REI training, this Racial Equity Institute training in a couple weeks. 
Um, th this is like s scary territory for a lot of like relatively affluent. M many of you have student loans, which is not real debt, um, but like middle class educated white people, like many of us, to experience this training that is, is gonna, uh, in a lot of ways, open our eyes to, to like foundational inequalities in our system, a system that does pretty good by us. Um, I, I invite you to participate in that, to be brave and courageous in that, and to view that as an opportunity to empty, to um, submit yourself, to, to even like possibly have a part of you die, um, and to put it on the line that you might, something that you might not get back. You know, it's the sort of thing that like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Do that. <laughs> go, go there. I think that kind of concreteness that we're called to is is the same in our in our um, call to be humble around the real things in our lives. Because so often the things that we're unwilling to be concretely humble about are sources of great pride for us. And these aren't necessarily um, the obvious things of boasting. Sometimes these can be really subtle, insidious things where pride sh creeps up, where we're not willing to empty ourselves. Uh, things like addictions. Ad addictions are, are tricky because uh, we do them and they have us. That's how sin works. And so things like addictions, even like to alcohol, like are we willing to empty ourselves of that? Are we willing to not fill ourselves with something that, that makes us feel good or makes us numb? Uh, same thing with pornography. Like are we willing to, to be emptied of whatever that good feeling that we get for that moment gives us? Are we willing to empty ourselves of like serial relationships that's, for some of us, that's what it is, or, or like constantly pumping our reputation. Like, this is like that social media kind of avalanche that happens, where uh, if if you don't keep up this this image, you're not going to exist. Like, that's an amazing thing. Social media gets this too. That's why all these social media uh, networks are going to this like ephemeral, like Snapchat kind of things only last for 24 hours and you gotta post and if you don't post, you don't exist sort of thing. Um, what would it mean for us to empty of that necessity to constantly be filling ourselves with information and, and feeling important? The last C, common, concrete humility is also necessarily confident. That might seem like a paradox we get in verse 9 and on to the end of this song, this Christ hymn. Therefore, that's another therefore. <laughs> therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory uh, uh, and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth uh, to the glory of God the Father. Like, I can't help but think that our confidence is, is where, where our ability to be humble hinges. If, if you're confident that God is in some way in charge, we talked about this in, in home group the other night, you can, do 
you can do amazing things and be amazingly faithful and empty an amazing amount if you believe that God will work it to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you believe that God is making things right now and ultimately. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that all these things that look like they're in charge and too strong, these forces on us and these powers and principalities that seem like unable to be defeated, if, if you believe that they're going to be next in line to you bowing before Jesus because he's really in charge, that's the real story of this universe, that's the real grain of all of this. Like I think of um, uh, our friend uh, Christina Cleveland um, who came during Lent and spoke to us. She has this great post that you should go read and I'll, when the uh, sermon post, I'll put a link to it. It talks about how um, often folks a lot like us that have a lot of privilege seek transcendence and so it's hard for us to see um, how God is working in hard stuff and how God is working in pain. When something bad happens, you, you, the first question you ask is where was God when all this? God was right there. God was concretely there. God remains there and God was not surprised by this. And, and she, she talks about the Magnificat as, as a text for this. When Mary is able to say, my soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you, my Savior, for you have looked with favor upon your lowly ser- servant. From this day forward, all generations will call me blessed. For you, the Almighty, have done great things for me, and holy is your name. Do you see that confidence that Mary has? Do you see how that, like is the, the atmosphere that Jesus is born into, is this mom with amazing confidence that these, these injustices and this lowliness that she's um, being just beaten with are going to be overturned because God actually is in control. That God's universal rule and his subsequent judgment of all things is going to come, and judgment is a good thing because judgment means God's making things right. This, this should give us a confidence. This should make us confident enough to die. <laughs> because everything matters and because like Jesus, whom we're in, will be vindicated. That's why as Christians we can wear a cross around our neck. Like that's a terrible, that's a state execution torture equipment. And we wear it around our neck because Jesus was vindicated. By God's spirit, he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the same spirit that's in us. So Paul takes, at the end of this chapter about humility, he, he, he rewrites Isaiah 45. And this is chapter about how God is making things right and will make things right. Isaiah 45 says that God will subdue the nations, strip kings of their armor, open gates. It says, I will go before you and level the mountains. Do you hear that in Mary's words? The, the low will be raised and the, the high will be brought low. In Isaiah 45, God says, You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. 
Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish within it. I, the Lord, have created it. When we talk about righteousness, we mean that benevolent force in God that is making things right. The thing, all the things in this world that are turned over sideways and wrong, he is setting them up right. That's the confidence that we hope for. That allows us to suffer greatly on behalf of God because we have this confidence that we'll be vindicated. Before me, every knee shall bow. By every tongue will swear. They will say, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. It's Isaiah 45. So we see this durability, this confidence is exactly what allows us to opt for fragility, for vulnerability, for following Jesus in this. Because we're confident that these things will work together for our good. We're confident that God reigns. It's also here that we find our unity. Go back to that word koinonia, that community, that mutual participation and sharing. We find that unity because we're gathered around a throne, worshiping this God whom we're confident in. We're gathered around this throne, and in Revelation is pretty crazy because we expect that on that throne to be this, this like macho righteous king, and it is a slaughtered lamb with a wound showing, and that's who we're worshiping. This one who would be vulnerable, who would empty and become nothing, who would become obedient to death on a cross. So we honor God, and and a paraphrase Flannery O'Connor, and that everything now that converges must kneel, must kneel before this throne and worship this lamb in humility and submission, but also in confidence of this victory that God has worked on the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that he's working in our lives for hope and for healing, and that he will work in his kingdom when righteousness reigns. You'll notice there's three components. Common, concrete, and confident. We've been talking about them related to humility. I think they also describe our ability to have joy. When Paul says, make my joy complete, he's counting that their joy will be common. That they'll all be able to access this joy. That their joy will be concrete. That they won't just be deferring it or waiting for when they can be joyful, but they'll be able to experience joy even in the midst of the small things and even in the midst of the hard things. And that their joy will be confident, predicated on who God is, what God's done. Like the words of Nehemiah, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this scripture, this master story. Help us pin our stories to it. Help us experience joy in suffering. Give us great confidence. Give us great courage to empty ourselves. Sometimes the call and the ability to do this, that it is actually doable, make it even more scary because it seems like um, we can say no. (laughs) 
we can choose to hold on or to fill when we should be emptying. Give us great confidence and courage to empty. To follow Jesus in that emptying, we don't have to blaze this trail. Jesus has carved it out for us. We don't do it for ourselves. We don't do it by ourselves. We do it in Christ and we do it together. Thank you for your spirit that helps us do that. We thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.